You know, we ask the question of how do you know God is gracious? And, and when I say the word grace, I don't mean elegance or beauty. I don't mean kindness or compassion. I don't mean a short prayer you pray before you eat a meal. I mean, how do you know that God has freely gifted us with rescue, salvation, and that while we were still in our sin, still chasing the very things that will kill us, God sent Jesus at just the right time to pay a price for us that we could not pay of our own. How do you know this? And I think, I think some people will say, well, experience has taught me that God is gracious. I survived the crash. I survived the car accident. I've held a newborn child. I've survived a financial wreck. I've survived relational disasters. I have survived. Experience will teach me this. Well, here's the deal. We don't all experience the same thing. People's experiences are different. So I can't say experience is what teaches us that God is gracious. While we may know a part of that grace through experience, I will tell you there are a lot of people I have walked with that have never seen a moment in life that has been anything but hard. They have only seen difficult. And so for us to lean on experience, I don't believe it's enough. And any idea of grace that we might have has been stirred by something that we have heard. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says this, So faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. Why is it that we spend in the word of God? Why is it that we use the scriptures? Because I believe and I believe the scriptures teach that if we don't hear from here, we will never know of the good news or the grace of God. And if the scripture says that faith comes from hearing about the good news of what Christ has done, then you better believe this is where we anchor. Because when, when we hear God's word, when we hear the scripture, when we hear it proclaimed, Faith begins to paint this new roadway for us, one that says, I will put my trust in the beauty and in the person and in the finished work of Christ and not my own works. We are tempted to walk the road of self-help and self-empowerment and top 10 lists to get ourselves to another place. But the scripture teaches, A, we are incomplete, and B, God teaches us how wholeness is possible. And it is so not in the same vein the world speaks. It's why we anchor ourselves in the scripture, even when there are difficult passages to wrestle with. You have to hear me. We cannot take and leave portions of the scripture. But at the end of the day, if faith is coming because of the word of God, that I'm going to say, God, I may not understand this, this, or this, but what I do understand is that you are good. And I'm learning more and more about your goodness as I grow older. So Jesus says that one of the reasons he came was to preach or to proclaim. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. Christians believe that God reveals who he is and truth about what he is like through these announcements. 
To proclaim or to preach is to reveal what is stated in God's word, in the scripture. It is to proclaim and to announce that God has done something in history that has changed our future. God has actually already done something. There was something in time. This is not a fairy tale. It is not a fable, but it is a moment and a point in history where God took the lead and made the step, made the, made the reach, made the run after, made the pursuit to know his people. And it's not going to be through what you or I can accomplish on our own, but it is going to be in what God himself does on our behalf. To reveal something is to uncover what is hidden. To reveal something is to make something that's already there visible. To reveal something is to make known publicly what may have previously been only known by a few. So when we say that God is revealing who he is, he's not creating who he is. He's letting us know what's already there. To reveal is to pull back the curtain and go, it's already there, not making it up, but it exists, and now you know about it. So when you go to, and this is what I love about the internet, is because um, before we actually had all of our children, people would just say, hey, we're having a baby, and they'd you know, throw it on the internet. But now, everything that has to do with that baby process gets revealed on the internet. Gender reveal parties, right? Like... You don't get to make up what the gender of your baby is. Now, I know we live in a society that's trying to, but when a, when a couple goes to a doctor, that doctor has all the skills, all the necessary tools, all the bleeps and the blorps and the things with the, the scannings that will reveal the gender of the baby. The doctor doesn't create the gender of the baby. The baby's gender's there. What he does is he goes, oh, I see it. See what? Oh, you want to know? You want to know what it is? And then they mess with you. They, they do that thing. And you're like, well, no, we don't want to know. Or yes, we do want to know. And in the same way, as Christ followers, we don't create truth. See, I think that's one of the things that is the biggest debate among this generation and generations prior, because there's this idea that somehow I create my truth or... As Christ followers to believe, do we stumble over truth? Is something true and we stumble upon it? And then we wrestle with the hard question of do I believe it or not? And as Christ followers, we believe three things about revealed truth, about who God is. Number one, we believe that God reveals himself through creation. We believe that when God created and when you go out there and you go hiking in a mountain and you go playing in a river and you go seeing these animals and you go swimming across the ocean and you go, you know, canoeing or you go and you sit out there and you're just taken aback by everything you're seeing, God is revealing his creation. And now sometimes we take that to an extreme limit and we begin to worship the creation. But the idea is not to worship the creation. The idea is to worship the creator who made the creation. But see, you and I can't know that just by creation being revealed. See, when we think about God and we think about creation, what's revealed through creation is, man, God is strong. God is creative. God is powerful. God is a provider. But we don't know necessarily about the grace we've received through just looking at creation. That's why we believe that God also reveals himself through Scripture. 
Christ followers believe that God reveals who he is. We don't make up who he is, but he reveals who he is through this text. And for us to get a clear picture of who God is, we have to be here. We have to be a people anchored here. Now, if you're not a Christ follower in this room and you don't want to know, you don't, you don't really understand why Christ followers do that when we could say we have a different God and we can have this God and we can have this God, Christ followers are held to this. For me to call myself a Christian means I hold to the teachings of Christ. And I know there's some of you who are like, well, then shoot, I don't want that. Then that's okay. You can feel sorry for us as Christ followers because we are held to this. Not because we're earning anything, but because we believe God has revealed himself as generous. In the Old Testament and in the, the law and the prophets, we see God reveal more about who he is in the Old Testament. When we talked about Moses' encounter with God last week, where God was like, nope, you can't see me. I know you want to, uh, but I'll put you in this crevice over here on this mountain. I'll pass by you and you can see my backside. And that's all you're going to get. But when, when Moses and God are on that mountain, God actually lays out who he is. Exodus 34, he says, Yahweh, the Lord, that's my name, the one and only. And he says, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. So we're getting another, another level of who God is. He's not just a creator, but wait a minute, he's slow to get angry, he's compassionate, he's merciful. Okay, all right. And then the rest of the Old Testament, yes, there are some very difficult stories to read through, very difficult things to wrestle with. But what you see if you read the Old Testament is the patience of God and a rebellious people. Folks, we do not paint the best picture of ourselves in the scripture. But you see a God over and over and over going, please come back, please return, drop what you're doing, put down the idols, come back, come back, come back. And you see people going, nah, we got this. And you see the dire and destructive consequences of rebellion and sin. But Christ followers also believe that God reveals himself through the person and the work of Jesus. And how do we know about Jesus? Because of this. We know what Jesus did in time and in history and in a real place with real people. We know that God stepped into time and made this life that he invites us to live possible, not empowered by you or me, but by the cross and what Christ has done. Christ followers believe that God reveals who he is and what he's up to in those ways. And he has given us his spirit Pay attention to all that Jesus has said and done. Just like that couple goes to the doctor to have their gender of their baby revealed, Christ followers do not have the luxury of creating who God is. God revealed himself so that we might know he is God. The scriptures take us down the logical next steps. If I believe that God exists, the logical next steps become asking the questions of what is he like? What has God done? What's gone wrong? Is there any hope? All of these questions that begin to come out when I'm getting to the point where I can say there's a God who exists. The next question is, what's he like? What's he done? 
What's going on in history? Where is this all headed? These are all natural questions that are asked from human hearts trying to figure out God. This series we are going to take several weeks to unpack how we know that God has been gracious, how we know we have access to that grace, and how we know that this grace changes everything. It changes everything to the point that Christ's followers have the only unique message in the world. And I believe if we really understood the depth of how unique what Christ has done is, I don't think we could hold it in. Which is why I believe we need to spend some time thinking, praying, and considering what he has accomplished for us. God has provided avenues for us to travel on that regularly strengthen and solidify our faith in his promises. And I love that throughout history, these promises, these avenues that we walk have been called the ordinary means of grace. I love that the church has understood how ordinary these things will look to an outside world. I understand that for some of you that might have been in church for a long time, how ordinary some of these things look. But the power of what Jesus has done takes these very ordinary and common things and he does a very uncommon work in us through those things. So as we look at preaching, as we look at the table, as we look at baptism, as we look at prayer, we are actually getting to see Christ present himself to us over and over and over. And do you know how often I need to see Christ? All the time. You and I are going to be tempted to place our trust and our faith in our own strength every moment just how desperate we are to put our trust in Christ every moment. So as we consider these things, the work that is done is that Christ actually reveals who he is and what he has done to us as we walk through these very common elements. Today we look at preaching, and I know you might be thinking this is the week where Jason tries to justify his existence to the entire church. I get that. Jason only works one hour a week, so he better explain himself. Um, this is the joke that pastors live with, and I'm willing to let it be. But honestly, I, I shy away from when I hear the word preaching because I grew up in a generation that has some really twisted ideas on what preaching is. And I don't know about you, um, but maybe this is what comes to mind when you think of preaching. Today's reading comes from the book of Proverbs. If I may digress for a moment from my prepared message. I mean it when I say to you, you guys, sometimes you're bad. Don't be jerks. You're supposed to be good. I'm in my office every day and somebody comes in and they're like, hey, 
Whoops. And I don't. Dan, what is your deal? If anybody doesn't know, Dan is the worst. I took a vow to not say who was the worst, but it's Dan. You guys are making me look bad in front of God. What's that? Oh, look, it's Jesus. And he said, stop it! <laughs> the word of the Lord. Jesus said, stop it! The word of the Lord. This is where I have to often answer the question of what preaching is not. And I believe it's a time for us to unpack what it is not as well. And I hope it will inform how you listen to Christian preaching or sermons in the future. I believe, and as I see through scripture, um, preaching is not, and I've given the three phrases in a row so that you have them. I do believe that Christian preaching is not be like, underscore, be good, or be more. Unfortunately, because we live in a a United States that loves motivational speaking, preaching can quickly follow suit because this is what people want to hear. Be like so-and-so, be good, and be more. What I mean by that is this, the be like preaching that, that many of us have fallen into because we don't really understand how to communicate grace. So what we do is we run to be like David, be like Abraham, be like Noah, be like you fill in the blank. And it's always been a struggle for me to celebrate the lives of people in the scripture. If you've ever read this book, like some of you, when you hear be like David, you might think David and Goliath. Absolutely. I think David and Bathsheba. So what are you saying? Be like David, be sneaky on my roof, peep and Tom. Is that what you want? That's what I think. I'm just telling you, my generation, when we hear be like people in the scripture, we run to the scripture and go, wait a minute, this dude's not so great. Be like Jonah, go and preach the word. Jonah was a racist, man. You know, be like Noah, have faith. You know, he ended up drunk, naked in a tent, right? So when we hear be like so-and-so, You have to be very cautious. You'd think that if the Bible was a man-made book, we'd at least have made ourselves look a little better than we do. But around every corner in the scripture, we come face to face with the shortcomings and the wickedness of human capability. True, there are elements and character qualities that we can learn from, yes. But how quickly David repented, how quickly David confessed his faith in God. But these cannot be the end of all preaching. This cannot be the most, the, 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 the depth of the content of Christian preaching. When we limit our time to be like so-and-so, we have failed to truly preach Christian, the Christian message. The problem is that we have not seen God as the hero, but we have made ourselves the hero of the story. When you hear be like, you put in your head and your heart, I got this. That is not what we want to walk away with as the people of Christ. The other element is the be good element. And I think this is probably one of the hardest to convince people that this is not the Christian message. There are some of you in this room who all you want is your kids to be good. 
You'd be willing to preach a Christless Christianity to the, your children as long as they would behave. We would be willing to preach a Christless Christianity as long as we're willing to behave. I was reading one um, theologian, and he lived in the city of Philadelphia, and he said, do you know who would want a town built on morality and good works and good deeds? The enemy. And I know that's hard for some of you to separate in your minds right now, but I've always heard, be good. That's what I've always been taught, be good. Well, I'm telling you, that the heart of the Christian message is not be good. And I think we have to be able to separate be good from the gospel. Because the gospel is not moralism. The gospel is not good behavior. The gospel is built on the person and the work of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so if we spend our time talking about being good... And I know there's some of you in this room that are going to stand up and tell your parents when you leave, see, mom, I told you so. But when we promote good as Christianity, what we promote is you can save yourself. You have no idea how sneaky your heart is. That's what the Bible teaches. The more I hear I can do it, the more I hear I've got it in me, the more I actually start to believe it. And do you know what be good creates in us? It creates in us a trust of our own, of ourselves. Be good messages or be good preaching typically focuses in on character qualities. How to be a better husband, employee, family, single, parent. At the end of the day, we hear a top ten list that will make us better people. The Christian declaration is not be good. I could make a good, be good sermon and I could write it and I could give it at a message as a, to a Unitarian congregation. I could speak it at a Jewish synagogue or, or a Buddhist temple or a Muslim mosque and more than likely we'd all be in agreement and might even get some applause. But I would not have proclaimed the Christian message. I would have proclaimed moralism. And in essence, I would have preached Legalism And what is legalism? The Pharisees were known for it, is to throw away and ignore the grace of God, and it replaces the work of Christ with self-help. It says, I can do this. I can behave. I cannot look at bad things on the Internet. I can avoid this. I can stop this. I can run from this. I can behave. This is not the Christian message. The last one that I believe needs clarification is the be more. And I do believe that there are many churches in America today that have limited their time in God's word to simply charging their people to be more. And what I mean by that is the be good is the don't do's, okay? When Christians lock themselves in their rooms and say, I don't drink, cuss, smoke, or chew, and I don't go out with the girls that do, that's the be good. I'm not going to. The be more is the church that has basically limited the church's role to being about action. You should be doing X, Y, Z. Be more. The actions that you and I should be taking. And if a message that is proclaimed from here only ends with be more, it is not the Christian message. 
I will tell you that a be more message might center around being more loving or more generous or more forgiving or more interested in the social issues of the day, reconciliation, wholeness, beauty, justice. But if left to those things alone, we simply call people to action and we will miss the fuel to actually walk in that very difficult call that Christ's followers are called to be. The early church, she was known for her care for the sick and the poor and those who were new to the countries. And Rome actually saw how Christ's followers cared for those in need so well that they actually put it on the Roman priests and those in the temples and Zeus's temple and all those things and said, you guys need to be doing the same thing the church is doing. And so they were like, we have to touch the sick. We have to care for the poor. So they did. That program only lasted a year. And they said, we're out. We can't do this. But the church has been known as a people who identify themselves with the Savior of the world coming close to those who need the most. The more we spend time pondering and considering how we should be more, we begin to develop in our own lives another form of legalism, another form of God. See, look what I'm doing. I'm doing all this stuff. Look at you. You look at me. I'm doing all this stuff. To proclaim a be more message is not the Christian message The Christian doesn't love others because we hope that God sees us loving others and will accept us. The Christian loves others in a radical way because we were radically loved by God. The Christian is not called to serve others because we hope God sees what we're doing or we hope our friends see what we're doing. The Christian radically serves others because we know we were radically served by the God of the universe. The Christian does not forgive quickly and radically because we hope that later God will forgive us radically and quickly. The Christian forgives radically and quickly because we have been forgiven radically. To make messages all about being more is to actually take away the very power to do any of what God has asked us to do. Philippians chapter 2 says this, For God is working in you giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. The common denominator between the be good, the be more, the be like messages that you may have heard in your Christian life is that they ultimately declare what is most important is what you do. What you do becomes central. What you can do, what you can change, what you can be becomes central to the conversation. It's what you do that matters most. And if Christianity is whittled down to it is what you do that matters most, then we are no different than any other world religion, cult, or social club for that matter. The Christian message would be stripped of its uniqueness. And we might as well just take our place in line with everyone else. And I know, I know it's so much easier to take your place in line with everybody else, right? Like, that's what we want. We just want to whittle down to Christianity and everyone else. We're all the same. We just want to do good things. And the truth is we are not the same. The message of the gospel is not the same. That's why it's awkward, folks. 
That's why it's hard for you to get into conversations about it. That's why you feel guilty when you share, because the enemy and the world both want you to just shut up about how different this message is. I feel it daily, almost hourly, of how strange this message really is. And I understand the temptation to close up shop and hide. But I believe if all we hear is be good, be more, and be like, there's good reason to close up shop. But if, but if these things of the gospel are true, then it changes everything. Is it a bad thing to talk about character traits from, one, from a person in the scripture? No, it's not. Is it bad to talk about the behaviors and the desires that develop in us as Christ followers? No, it is not. Is it bad to talk about Christians being a part of an action step in a world that needs action? No, it is not bad to talk about those things in and of themselves. But when these things turn bad is when they are talked about by themselves. If the Christian message remains, do good, be more, be like then ultimately it is anti-Christian. And I know for some of us, this is like, what? But in a day and an age where we want to hear what we want to hear, it's easy to find a church that will talk about the top 10 things you need to do to be a better you. And you know what? You know the guilt and the failure that comes from that? See, when you preach these types of messages regularly, you create two people in your church and you don't know it. You create Pharisees and you create people who have nothing but despair. And here's why. Because when you think you've got it, you become proud and you become right. And when you understand that you can't do the things that you've just been told to do, you become despairing and you sink and you say, well, then I'm not good enough, and I don't belong. Friends, I'm telling you, this is so dangerous for the human heart to hear. Um, it's funny because uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, he's one of the, you know, he's been called the prince of preaching historically. He's just been amazing at what God was able to communicate through him. And this day and age that we live in where you see messages of be more, be like, and be good, that it, it's not new. It's been, it's been happening for a long time. And Charles Spurgeon, before he was actually a Christian, he attended a Christian school. And as a child, um, he sat in on a lot of churches that talked about morality and being good and being like and, and, and behavior and all of those things. And there was a woman that was a cafeteria worker at the school he went to. And this woman always talked about the grace of God. And it was new for him to hear these things that he, she was talking about. And he asked her in wisdom, he looks at her and goes, how do you get fed going to any of these churches that all they do is preach work and law and do? And she said, the way I get fed is I go and I take my place in the body of Christ at that church. And then in my mind, after, the pre after everything the preacher says, I say not. And then I have heard a gospel sermon. <laughs> I loved that story. But what we are walking through is not new. It is the human heart. 
that we have to be careful with how we deal. And in the New Testament, Paul, the missionary, a man who constantly spoke of his own shortcomings and how the power of God is everything, he went to this town called Corinth. And Corinth is a city for the records. It's a, I mean, it is a city with the, the, their athletic competitions were known, I mean, second to the Olympics. They were the largest athletic competition city in the world. Their theater performances, they had a, an outdoor theater that could seat 10,000, an indoor theater that could seat 3,000. They had uh, religious shrines and temples to foreign gods everywhere. Prostitution, temple prostitution was still at work in this city and its taverns. They were actually known as a place that utilized underground cooling systems to cool the drink. They were known as a place where there was loose morals and scandal everywhere. And I could totally see Paul going in going, this place is perfect. This place is perfect for the gospel. And the truth is, the gospel did get proclaimed and churches began to form and people came to faith, but it is a very bumpy road with this church. If you've ever read First and Second Corinthians, you know how bumpy it really is. Paul has to address the struggles of the church, and there's division over a number of topics. We won't go into those this morning. But Paul pleads with them to be of one mind, united in thought and purpose, because they were not. And the result of them being divided was boastful people. They were boasting about all sorts of things, about themselves and about what they were doing. And Paul starts with a curious opening to a people he's having to go to town with, take him to the shed in some respects. And he opens this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he says, I am writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. Paul doesn't break right into, you guys are doing wrong. What are you doing? What are you thinking? He actually goes, do you remember who you are? Do you remember all that God has done? Have you so quickly forgotten who he is and what he pulled you from and where you've been and what you've seen? And in all the midst of that, he still said, come to me. You're my people. I will make you holy. You don't make you holy. I will do the work. I've done the work. And it's made possible through what Christ has done. It reminds me of the psalmist in Psalm 71. He says, oh God, you have taught me from my earliest childhood and I constantly tell others about the wonderful things you do. Now that I'm old and gray, do not abandon me, O God. Let me proclaim your power to this new generation, your mighty miracles to all who come after me. That's what it sounds like. It's like somebody going, let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you who he is in the midst of a world that all we want to do is talk about who we are. Let me tell you what God has accomplished. Let me tell you who Jesus is in the midst of a world that says, try harder, be more, be better. Jesus is saying, I know you can't do those things. And Jesus has still said, come to me and I'll make you whole and I'll give you rest. In the midst of having to address all these very difficult life decisions, sinful desires and conflict, Paul remains in his simple message of the good news. Paul doesn't call the people to be good, be more, be like. In fact, he stays centered on the gospel, even in his correction of people who are really messing up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, he says this, 
For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Foolishness means stupid, silly, worthless. And this is exactly how someone who trusts in their own strength sees the message of the cross. The Jews wanted power in their Messiah. We talked about it several weeks ago. They demanded the sign, prove to us. And it was foolish that Jesus would declare that he is who he says he is. The Greeks said, <laughs> we don't think it's wisdom. I mean, if a God is going to die then he's clearly not God, right? So their wisdom said, this message is foolishness. So everyone is offended by Jesus. But then Paul continues reminding those who have heard the good news, believed it in our God's children. Verse 24, But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose, the, chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus for our benefit. God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. If I could sum up the scriptures, it might just sound like that. If we want to boast about anything, let's boast about, let's make much noise about, let's make the name of Christ sound more valuable than anything else in this life. And through Paul's simple message, this is exactly what he does. Chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, which he could have, I want you to understand, Paul could have. I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Paul's words continue to remind us that we are a desperate people in need of God's grace and we need Christ to be our wisdom and strength and he did that for us. 
Paul's words help us remember that our hope is in Christ, not in our perfection, not in our strength, not in our abilities, not in what we've done in life or what we haven't done in life, not when we think we've been moral superior people, we need to understand that our works are as filthy rags to him. And when we think we are the prostitute and the tax gatherer, that we are the ones that Jesus came to say, you're sick and I, I've got life and you can come to me and you can be made well. We need to understand that both sides have to look at Jesus. Because if we don't, we preach an unchristian message. As we close this morning, one of my favorite things in the world is walking into an old, hot, stinky gym. Basketball courts, those Indianapolis, you know, those Indiana Hoosier basketball courts, like. And those metal rims, they're just that ring. There's no give to them at all. And the, even maybe, maybe they have the wood backboard too, you know? And they have very little stands for people to sit in. But it's just, it's 100 degrees in that gym. And even when you dribble the basketball on the floor, you can hear that hollow sound. It's like a good sound. Like, you're like I love this. And, and hopefully when you walk in, the basketball is like worn down. <laughs> and doesn't have much grip on it. It's not a new one, but it's old. And you're looking in the windows. Some of the windows in the gym are broken. Like, you can see it. Like, you, some of you can picture an old gym right now. But when you walk into one of those old gyms, like, as a basketball player, I go, I remember why I love this game. Like, I love everything about basketball. And when I walk into one of those old gyms, I'm filled with remembrance of how much joy I found in playing basketball in the very same way when we gather on a Sunday morning when we sit around a table with people and unpack the scriptures that is essentially what we are doing we are bringing to remembrance our first love Christ we are bringing to the forefront the one we need the most we are bringing to front and center Christ's finished work, covering all my failures, all my weakness, all my, my, my screw-ups during the week, all my mistakes in life. We are remembering the cross that drew us and the cross that constantly draws us. Through preaching the scripture, God doesn't only reveal that we are incomplete, he actually reveals to us how we are made whole. I think most people take off too quickly because they hear that they're incomplete and they don't stick around to hear how to be made whole. And my prayer is that every week as we look at how we are incomplete, we get to turn our eyes off of how incomplete we are to the wholeness of Jesus and what he has brought broken, imperfect, and incomplete people. As we close this morning, I'd like to do something with you. We're going to go into a time of communion. And I'd also like to open it up as a chance for people to respond. So I'd love for you to just close your eyes for a second. In Scripture... In the Old Testament, there is one mountain 
And in the New Testament, there is another mountain. There's Mount Sinai that represents the law that was given to the people. And in the New Testament, you have Mount Calvary. You have the hill of the cross. My question for you today is, as you walk out of here, which mountain are you going to run to this morning? Are you going to run to your works? Are you going to run to Mount Sinai? Are you going to run to the Old Testament mountain, which the law was provided for us, to keep those things, to keep up a performance, to make God look on you with favor, which actually is impossible? Or are you going to run to Mount Calvary, which is the scene of a murder, of a death? But it also is the place of life. Are you tempted to run to Mount Sinai because it's what you can control and what you can do? Are you afraid to run to the cross, to Mount Calvary, because it means you're putting your trust in someone else? Who will you leave here holding in highest regard this morning, yourself or Jesus? As we go to communion this morning, we are not reminded of Mount Sinai. We are reminded of Mount Calvary. So as you go this morning to the corners of the room, it's just time to thank God that we run to a new place. It's time to just say thank you. It's a time to be reminded that I can't be good, I can't be like, I can't be more. But Jesus, you are all those things on my behalf. So because of your work, I know I can be like Jesus. I can't be like Jesus on my own. <laughs> I'm so dependent down to the last need for to giving me the desire to be like Jesus. I need Jesus. So as we go to the corners of this room this morning, I hope you won't be walking out with a stronger sense of your abilities and your strength and, or even your failures, but that you would go to this table, this bread and this juice, and you would remember that it was Jesus, the foolishness of the cross, that is the very power of God, saving us, shaping us, and transforming us.